You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. I don't know about you, but have you noticed that our world is getting more and more intense? How many of you in this room are intense competitors? Be honest. Come on, raise your hands. Yes, you're a competitor. Uh, some of you were proud because you got your hand up first. Others of you <laughs> are intensely competitive and you're like, I'm going to beat you all and I'm not going to put my hand up. You just think that you're intensely competitive. Yeah, I mean, I'm a competitor, and, and there are times that, you know, you want to win. Even when I was young, I wanted to compete, and I played, like, a lot of soccer growing up, and I played uh, soccer in college, and I uh, played volleyball and other things like that, and just very competitive, and it took some injuries and some things in my college years, I think, for God to teach me that sports are a part of life, not all of life. And it just took some correcting in my, in my intensity to be able to uh, help me understand that. But even my uh, senior year, we would go, and uh, when I was in high school, uh, growing up at church, we would go to Hume Lake. How many of you went to Hume Lake Christian Camps? Went around there, awesome. I, you know, great place. God does amazing things at uh, camp in the life formatively for junior hires, senior hires, children, others. And uh, it's just really neat to go to camp. And it was my senior year, and we were going to Hume Lake. And among the guys I knew would be in my cabin, all these other senior guys that I had become good friends with, um, we, I looked around and I realized, okay, uh, one of the events at Hume Lake that you have to compete in is the lake run. It's a 3.2-mile race around Hume Lake, and it's uh, cross-country-like. So it's all up and down hills, and it's, just, it's pretty rough. And uh, I looked around the guys, and I'm going, okay, I'm going to run the lake run. You know, you guys do some other competitive things, but I had just gotten off playing soccer, and I was in pretty good shape, and then I said, I'll keep myself in shape as we go through the summer so that when we go to Hume Lake, I'll run the lake run, and, uh, and then, you know, I'll have a go at it, and I don't run cross-country, and they don't know really anything about it, but I, I'm a soccer player. I know how to run, and so I was training that summer, and we even went to Colorado and uh, on vacation, and that whole week, I'm running at altitude, so I'm like trying to like acclimate, like, okay, you know, Hume Lake's a little bit above the sea level there, I'm going to acclimate, and I'll be in good shape, and so I'm running, and then I, uh, we get back from vacation, and then go to camp, so we go up to Hume Lake, and it's just awesome, we load up our buses, we get up there, first thing we do when we get up to camp is they open those big side doors on the buses, and take out all the luggage, and the camp counselors say, all right, guys, all you guys carry the women's luggage, up to their cabins. And so, like, his chivalry was still alive back then. And so we grab all these things, and we're taking them up to the girls' cabins, which is, like, carrying them forever up these steps to their cabins. And then we, there's a lot of luggage carriers, so we would, like, run back down, and we get a little competitive and not running back down. So we're, like, running back down, and as I'm running down, I, my foot, these are flagstone steps. My foot goes in between a crack on the flagstone steps, and it turns over, and my ankle sprains really bad. And I'm right near down the end, you know, like the last like three stairs or so. I hit that and I wipe out and it's an ugly wipeout. Like there's no, there's no way to like recover. Like, oh, I turned my ankle, you know, I'm all cool. There's none of that. Like you can't recover. I like totally wipe out and I'm trying to be all cool because I'm a senior guy and there's like girls around and you don't want to be like, you know, blubbering. And so, you know, I'm, I'm like trying to keep it together and you have that second, you know, when you sprain your ankle, you have that second where it goes over and you're like, oh, and you go down and you know it's coming. Like that squeeze on your ankle, the intense pain, everything is about to happen. But there's like this one brief little instance that just hasn't kicked in yet. Well, that thing kicked in and it was brutal. You know, it was just really painful. Starts to swell. Like my friend helps me. Well, I didn't have to carry any more luggage. But my friend, uh, 
he helps carry me like back to my cabin and I get there and then you know they go back off to run and do the luggage and I'm lying on my bunk and I'm in pain of course but I'm also really frustrated because I've just spent all this time and all this energy trying to get things to go the way I wanted them to go and now I'm basically down for the count and you know you don't know is it like I don't it's not broken but you know it's a bad sprain and so the next couple of days, I'm like hobbling around camp, and I'm not even, you know, I don't even, I can't look cool or anything, you know, I don't, I don't have crutches up there, and so I'm just hobbling around, and I'm just, you know, frustrated, and so it's about Wednesday or, uh, of that week, and, um, and I figure, okay, I got to get this thing loosened up, because Friday, like the competition day is coming, and so I'm like, all right, let's see if I can, if I can just get it loosened up enough to, to you know, run on. And so I stretch it out, get up real early in the morning, and it is brutal because when you've been sleeping all night and you're trying to, like, you know, get a joint like that that's really swollen and painful, it's just brutal. So I finally get, and I'm kind of, you know, jogging like this around, and then I, find, I start getting in stride, it starts getting warmed up, and I'm like, hey, I, I think I could do all right with this, and I'm, I'm jogging about a third of the way around the lake, and I'm just being very careful where I step because that ankle is, it's so weak, you know, when you sprain an ankle, and as I'm going, I'm so careful in my right ankle that I sprain my left ankle. And I just wipe out, and I'm like, I like lie there like the you know, guy with two sprained ankles. Who has two sprained ankles, right? And here's me with two sprained ankles, and I'm like lying there, and I'm like, oh, just pain, you know? And then I'm like, I just got to like get a guy like, like, you know, crawl, basically. No, I, you know, I hobble back into camp, and, and I get there, and I'm just so, again, just so frustrated. Like it, even my good effort to work just didn't work. And, and so it's, it's that night, you know, like two days before the the competition day, and I'm just frustrated, and we're having our cabin time, where all the guys, you know, we just discuss what we've been learning in chapel and all, and so they just say, well, do you have any prayer requests? I'm like, yeah, I just, would you guys just pray for my ankles, because I had done all this training, and blah, 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 and I loved running the lake run, and so the guys are like, well, let's pray for you right now, so they kind of come over, and they, they come over, and they lay hands on my ankles, and I'm in my sleeping bag on my bunk, so I'm like, this is awesome, like my friends, you know, my dudes, they're around me, and, and they're laying hands, and they pray, you know, for my ankles. We all go to sleep that night. You know, it's just great. I thought, how sweet of them to do that, and I know God can do anything God wants to do. And I wake up in the morning, and my ankles are healed. There's no swelling. There's no pain, as if it never, yeah, clap for that. That's good stuff. God does good stuff. As if it never happened. Now, I've never had something like, like that ever happen before. I've had other sports injuries. I've prayed for them. Other people prayed. They didn't go away. But that night, God chose to heal my ankles. So the next day, I get up. I run the lake run. I end up in third place. I run 3.2 miles in 19 minutes and three seconds, mostly because I saw two really tall guys whose waists were like right here. And I thought, if I can just hang with them... I got a good chance here. So they were cross-country runners. I just ran behind them and I came in third place, ran the lake run. It was awesome. I was like praising God and I just never had anything like that happen. I think God just taught me that God can do whatever God wants to do whenever he wants to do it. He's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. And sometimes we go through difficulties and we accuse him of that. God, you could do whatever you want to do at any time you want to do it, but you, you're not doing what I need you to do right here, right now. Fast forward to age 29. My dad is dying of pancreatic cancer. By the time he got checked in the hospital and died, it was 21 days. That's how fast. He was 56. And in that time, 
we begin to say, well, God, can't you? I remember when you healed my ankles. Like, God, I know you could touch my dad and he could raise up out of that sick bed and he could go on and and I know it up here but I'm watching what's happening here my dad believes that and I believe that and God you can do whatever you want to do and and yet we prayed for him we depended on him and he still died and situations like that sometimes confuse us you know what's interesting is we oftentimes have more intense faith in modern healthcare's ability to heal than the God who created the universe and his ability to heal. We put more intense faith. In fact, it's like default. You get sick, you go, oh, I want to just go to the doctor. And you, you think you, you may or may not even, you might pray to get a good appointment, but you may not even be praying about your sickness or your illness. You might be prayerless in your life. And you put more trust there. And we say, well, God, what happens? What about when you don't seem to heal? And then other times when you do seem to heal, and, you know, is that a favoritism thing? What's going on? Well, James gives us some insight as he begins to talk to people about intense faith. He's saying, as you've endured these trial-like circumstances, if you've been oppressed, as you've walked through hard circumstances in all these areas, he is now saying, listen, stop swearing, stop making oaths, He's saying, stop your grumbling and complaining that was going on. Stop making judgments on the inside that are working their ways on the outside, leading to fights and quarrels and leading to your tongue being a tattletale and telling on your heart by what you say with words you can't recapture. He's saying, stop all this and pray. And so if you have your Bible, open with me to James chapter 5, beginning with verse 13. He says, is any of you in trouble let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them pray. Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they'll be forgiven. Elijah was a human being. Even uh, as, oh, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. It's interesting, as we look at this passage, James is saying, instead of relying on hoarding, Instead of relying on taking revenge, instead of relying on grumbling or empty promises, intense, intense faith reveals itself in the life of a believer through prayer. I want you to think just for a minute about your prayer life or the last time you prayed. Not out of guilt, guilt is not helpful, but out of dependence. When is the last time I depended on the Lord in prayer? When I had to pray because other options may have been exhausted. You know, this week, as I was just still processing and convicted about what we talked about last week, that there were people who were hoarding riches in the last days, that they were, they were you know, basically just hoarding up the surplus or anything for themselves. I just, this week, went through my closet, and I looked at, you know, do the clothes in my closet cry out to God? You know, am I hoarding things in there that I don't need? And I, and I know something you don't know, that Next month, we're going to do a 
clothing drive and canned food drive for Elk Grove Food Bank and Clothing Closet. And they need clothes for men's clothes. They need jackets for anybody, children or male or female. Um, and then they need a lot of canned food. And so I was going through, I was going through where maybe I've been hoarding in my closets and just cleaning those out. And then I went through some of my electronics and just said, am I hoarding in my electronics? Could I sell some of these things and use the resources to bless those in another country who are poor? And James is saying, listen, look at your stuff. That stuff cries out because it's going to reveal what's in your heart. And is there some greed there? And James is saying, don't be stuck by that. Those things make you unhealthy on the inside. Greed does, just like unchecked rage and anger and fights and quarrels make you unhealthy on the inside. He's saying, stop that stuff. Instead, he's saying, pray. And prayer has many forms. Uh, He says this, is anyone of you in trouble? Then pray. For example, we all walk in this room with different stuff. Some of you have walked in today and you're in trouble. Life circumstances for you are just, you're in trouble. You're facing a trial, you're in a test, you're in a temptation, you're, you're in trouble and you've walked in here today and James' encouragement would be to pray. Others of you have walked in here today and you're happy. Life is feeling pretty good and God's done some stuff and, you, and you're uplifted and he says, sing songs of praise, which are great. And he says, is any of you sick, any among you sick? Then let them pray. He actually talks about calling the elders and we'll look at what that means in a minute. But those are all actually interchangeable, aren't they? Then you can say this, instead of, are you in trouble? Pray. And are you happy? Sing songs of praise. Well, sometimes we sing songs of praise when we're in trouble, don't we? Think of Paul and Silas. They're in chains in prison, and it's the middle of the night, and they have just gotten beaten, and now they're singing praise songs up to God, and the rest of the people who are in chains and in prison are saying, this is not normal. The people don't normally do this. This is not normal. I mean, maybe they had some mushrooms or something. They, you know, they didn't know what was going on, but these people were singing praise in the middle of that. Why? They were in trouble, and they were still singing praise to God, and isn't that what we do? Think about this song. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Right? We say, God, even as you've blessed us, but at certain times life takes that stuff away, God, give or take away, we're still going to sing a song of praise. Am I in trouble? I can sing a song of praise. Am I in trouble, I can pray. Am I happy, I can sing a song of praise. Am I happy, I can pray. Am I sick, am I well, I can pray. They're interchangeable. Many of the readers that would receive this letter from James, the half-brother of Jesus, were worn out. They were in trouble. They were like weary sheep. They had been putting up with oppression for a long time. They had been putting up with trials or tests or temptations for a long time, and some of them were just weary. They were like stuck. They were just like sick sheep, and they were just, they they may have not been physically sick at the moment, but they were sickened on the inside. They were paralyzed. Others of them were happy, and things were going well. And James is coming along talking about a Jesus who loves people who've been oppressed and loves the oppressor. And he loves people who've been victimized and people who've gone through abuse. He loves them and he hears their cry. Those cries reach out to him and he hears them and he loves them. And God also loves and his love extends to the abuser and the victimizer. 
And James is saying, let's understand what it means when you get sick, when you're happy, when you're in trouble, and what power prayer has in all three of those. If you're taking notes today, I want you to understand something as we talk about sickness and healing. The term there is actually physically incapacitated. It's me with two sprained ankles, okay? And that's mild, of course, compared to a lot of physical incapacitation. But you get the idea. It's physical <clears throat> incapacitation. And, and as I used to study this passage, I, I looked at it, and it was interesting because the word there that's used, I thought always meant like you were sick unto death, like you're on death's doorstep, you're about to die. And, and your sickness may have been as the result of divine discipline, like God was going to you know, knock you off because of your sin. And, but as I studied this more and more and more, I realized that that word was used that way in like three times, but it's used like 40 times to describe a sickness of the heart, a sickness of the soul. That there are those of us who our paralysis is not physical, but it's emotional, it's mental, it's spiritual. But you've come to a point where you are incapacitated, whether physically ill, or whether you are spiritually weak, you are worn down, the trials have been long, the burden has been hard, and you're worn down by it. But we get sick. Sickness is as a result of a fallen world, isn't it? That's when sickness entered the world. That Adam and Eve were in the garden, there was no sickness. But when sin entered the world, one of the consequences that came with it was mortality and the things that kill us off. And so sickness is just part of being part of Welcome to being human. It's part of a fallen world. And sometimes we get sick, and that's what it is. And we go to the doctor, and we, we get things, and we get well. Or our body does its natural healing properties, and we get well. And the cold we once had goes away. We don't always just have a cold. But sickness sometimes can be the result of sin. And James has just talked about a situation where sickness was not the result of sin. He talked about Job previously in this passage. Job was a righteous man. He was so righteous that, in fact, he said this, After I give sacrifices for my own sin, just on the off chance that my kids sinned and forgot to offer their sacrifices, I'm going to take responsibility for their sin too, and I'm going to offer sacrifices for their sin for my kids. His concern was not only for his own life, but for his family. He just took responsibility in that way. And when Satan accused God of playing favorites, God said, all right, you can touch the man, but you can't take his life. And so Job's wealth, some of his family was killed off, his health was affected, his riches were gone, and his friends came to him and they began to say, Job, this has got to be because you've got sin in your life. This, all these circumstances externally are a direct result that you must have sinned. And he said, no, I'm innocent. Before the Lord, I've taken responsibility. I have confessed and given sacrifice for my sin. I want an audience before God. And time and again, his friends didn't believe it. Why? Because they looked at the outside things and say, all these troubling things must be happening to you because you're under God's condemnation. And they were looking at his circumstance from a very human point of view. Don't we do that? Sometimes we look at all of our circumstances and we say, God, why are you so harsh with me? God, why, where are you when I need you? If, you? if you truly love me, God, and then we fill in the blanks, don't we? But not Job. His wife told him, why don't you just curse God and die? 
Thank you, honey. Love you too, right? <laughs> she saw his suffering and she's like, it just seems like it would be easier if you would provoke God to knocking you off. Because look how brutal our lives are right now. Maybe you've been there. Job says, shall we accept good from God and not hardship? And here's a guy who was sick, sick even unto death, but it wasn't as a result of sin. However, James is saying that there, there can be sickness that is a result of sin. Let's look at what that looks like. Sometimes God uses sickness as spiritual therapy. Like God disciplined in the Old Testament, the grumbling and the complaining of the Hebrew slaves who wandered out of Egypt and escaped Pharaoh, but were wandering around the desert, and they grumbled, and they complained against God, and they complained against their spiritual leadership, which God took personally because he said, they're not complaining against you, Moses, they're complaining against me. And he, he took all this grumbling complaining, and God had enough of it, and he killed off a bunch of them for complaining and for grumbling. And James just said, stop your grumbling. Whether you are the oppressor or the oppressed, you're grumbling. Instead, pray. Talk to God. James indicates that illness and paralyzing weakness can sometimes be God's megaphone to reveal sin. So what does he say to do? You and I should confess our sin. We should pray. We should, if we have sinned, our sin will be forgiven, and then we will be healed. If our sickness is as a result of sin, and we call the elders or a spiritual brother or sister alongside, they pray over us. If it's a result of sin, we'll be healed and move forward. If it's a result of just the fall in human nature, we'll continue to be sick. But there's an inner healing that happens here, isn't there? Confess your sin, pray, receive forgiveness, and be healed. Do you know a lot of times in a self-sufficient culture, we love to confess our sin to God. We ask for prayer. We might pray ourselves. We want forgiveness. But a lot of times, we're not experiencing healing. What do we do in Celebrate Recovery? We say this. We admit to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. See, the accounting comes when we're honestly open with another person that we admit to ourselves. That's what confession is. Confession is admitting to God that what we did was sin. We're not trying to hide it. We're not trying to explain it away that it was somebody else's fault and I got provoked and whatever else. It's saying, God, what I did, it was sin. There's no if, and, or but about it. It's sin. Change happens when we rely on intense prayer instead of self-sufficiency. We want to keep it secret. We don't want to tell somebody else what we've done. We don't, we don't want someone. We just, hey, it's just between me and God. I'm just going to pray it out to him, and then I'll be forgiven, and we're all good, and we move forward, and then we wonder why our life isn't changing, why healing isn't happening on the inside. What does James tell us to do? We've got to humble ourselves. Humble ourselves to pray. Humble ourselves to sing songs of praise. Humble ourselves to pray and ask elders of the church to come and pray. Well, let's talk about what that looks like a little bit. If you're taking notes today, elders are men who are the spiritual overseers of the church. And I want you to catch this. The elders are lay men in our congregation, just regular people like you and me, but they have been elected by our congregation to be the spiritual overseers of our church. If you've been to our Discover class, we say that we are staff-led and elder-protected, that we hire professional 
ministry-trained staff to lead in the direction of the church. The elders oversee that, and they protect it. They ensure that we're not getting off mission. And part of our role as elders is the prayer component for those who are sick, who think maybe they're sick because of sin. Those who are spiritually stuck, potentially because of sin in their life. They are just weak, and life and change are not happening in their lives to the degree that it should be. Well, he talks about this oil, that the elder will come and they will anoint the person with oil. What does that mean? Uh, it, you know, is the oil magic? No, the oil is not magic. It represents the Holy Spirit who heals, not a person's spiritual office or special ability. So it's not that there are certain people who are like, I completely am a spiritual healer. And there are people in our culture who will tell you, I'm a spiritual healer and come to me and I'll, I'll heal all these things in your, in your past or in your life. That's not the point that these, the elders are men. And when the elders come and we anoint you with oil, uh, we just take a little, a little you know, oil. It's like fragrant or scented oil. And, and it's not the oil. There's nothing magical about the oil. The oil represents God's Holy Spirit. In the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is represented by a number of things. Here's, here's what you have. Oil is one. Wind is another. Uh, he alighted on Jesus. He, la he landed on Jesus in the form of a dove at Jesus' baptism. Uh, we have tongues of fire that represent the Spirit and also water. So all these things represent the Spirit. When the elders come around a person who's called them to come and pray for them, and they gather around him and they put some oil on on the person's uh, forehead, it's just regular oil. I mean, we could use, you know, we could use cooking oil. We could use, I don't think synthetic oil works. Uh, we might use, you know, motor oil, not, probably not so helpful. Uh, it's just usually fragrant oil. Again, there's nothing special about the oils. It's just a little oil that represents God is the one who heals. It's his Holy Spirit. It's by his power that healing would happen. And third, the prayer is a private party, not a public show. Sometimes you have come in, some of you in this room, you've come in and our elders have gathered in an office or room here and we have prayed over you regarding your sickness or where you've been and, and just uh, appealed to God on behalf of you and your life. We've anointed your head with oil. You've called us and said, would you pray for me in that way? And we have responded and it's a very, it's a private party. But we live in a culture where there loves to be these public shows, whether it's trying to be like, hey, we're a special church that has special powers, or whether it's somebody who proclaims himself as some sort of faith healer, which always made me curious, like, why don't faith healers just go to the hospital, right? But they want to go in to say, I I'm going to be a faith type of healer. At one point uh, at a church I used to serve, and there was a lady, and she came, and she said, I, I had a knee injury at the time. I tore part of my patella tendon and um, playing basketball, and I was going to have to have surgery. And she goes, before you go, let me just pray for you. And I thought she meant like, let me just pray for you before you go into surgery. And I'm like, great. So I, she comes in. Uh, she's one of the prayer people at the church I used to serve at. And uh, she and another person are, were there in my office. And she just, let me pray every knee. And she begins to pray. And she said um, that my infirmities, including my torn patella tendon in my knee, that they were nailed to the cross. That God had like nailed all sickness, all infirmities. He had just covered it all, nailed it all to the cross. And while I believe that that is ultimately true and that a mortal life gets laid down, that Christ raises us immortal with a new body, I didn't think that she was accurate 
in the scriptures and what she was saying. I think she would, had heard something from somebody and was just kind of repeating that. You know, we just kind of repeat things we hear sometimes. And I think she confused two passages. Let me show you what they are. First of all, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Speaking of Christ, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your, fr- of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. And he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. And he's taken it away and he nailed it to the cross. And that is talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament law revealed to us what sin is. It showed us this is what sin is. And Jesus took that away. You are now under, you've got charges against you because you've sinned. And if you die, and he says, I will take away all that charge and it will be nailed, in a sense, to the cross. I have fulfilled the Old Testament requirement. I have fulfilled the Old Testament law. And the atonement happens in that moment. Jesus took that away. All of our sin was nailed to the cross in Christ. And then Matthew 8, verse 17, Jesus said, This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He quotes, He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. It's referring to the Old Testament. Isaiah, a prophetic passage talking about what the Messiah would do and what his ministry would look like on earth. And so sometimes people confuse it. They go, oh, well, he's he's taken. He bore our infirmities. He bore our diseases. And then they say, well, he nailed it to the cross. And they're confusing those passages because the passage is the Old Testament forecast of Jesus' healing ministry while he was physically here on earth. Because if you look at Isaiah 53, verse 5, you'll see this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. It's talking about the effects of sin. That for those who put faith and trust in a Messiah who stretched out his arms and said, I will take all your sin upon myself on the cross and it will be nailed to me here. And I will suffer as a righteous person, not because Christ had sinned. He hadn't. He was without sin, but he said, I will own your sin as mine. And then the most amazing miracle will happen. My righteousness, 100% righteous, 100% pure, my righteousness will be placed on you through faith in what I'm doing right here. It's called the atonement, that he atoned for our sin. He satisfied the Old Testament requirement regarding sin and he bore it in his own body. He was the only righteous sacrifice. There are no more sacrifices needing to be made. New Testament says, except for the sacrifice of love. Because of the atonement, spiritual healing is guaranteed for any believer. We will no longer die and go to hell but that when our mortal body wears out, that we have eternal life with Christ and our sins have been washed away. So James says this in James 5, 15, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. And ultimate healing is eternal. It's not merely physical. Do you realize that? That my dad who died of pancreatic cancer experienced ultimate healing. Did God heal him? Yes. 
Did God heal him in this body to keep him around here on earth? No. But is he free? Yes. He has been freed. Jesus, interestingly, was always more concerned with spiritual healing than physical healing during his earthly ministry. Did he physically heal people? Absolutely. But he always used the physical healing as a precursor to challenge the spiritual condition of the individual, to test their faith, to to make them think outside the box, and then Jesus met their physical need. But he was always more concerned. Why? Because even the people Jesus healed eventually died. Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, healed. Had to die twice. I'm sure death the second time around was much more comfortable for him because he kind of knew what was going on, right? But we don't know. Nobody interviewed the guy. It's like one of my major complaints with scripture. Seriously? Like nobody interviewed that guy. Get raised from the dead. Who missed that? But those people that Jesus healed died naturally later on. So the healing he was more concerned about was spiritual healing. So what does he say to do? James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We've got some problems with confession, don't we? Our problem with confession is that we confess and we say, God forgave me, and then we repeat the sin, and then we confess, and then God forgave me, and then we repeat the sin, and we confess, and God forgave me, and we repeat the sin. And we say, my life isn't changing. Am I forgiven? Yes, God forgives. We confess. But am I healed? No. Not yet. Why? James gives us a glimpse into why. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Why? So that you may be healed. Healing comes along with accountability. It's why in our church we say get in a community group. It's why we say be a part of Celebrate Recovery. It's why we say get some some guys around you, that guys need a brotherhood and women need a sisterhood around you of trusted friends that you can talk to and be able to share the real things going on in your life with. We need that with each other. Why? Because it's in community that we actually grow. And some of you are saying, I'm not growing spiritually. And I want to say, are you isolated? Or have you gotten in community where you're challenging one another and where you're building some trusted friends that you can be real with? So that when you confess, there can be some help and you can be healed because confession before God is great and we are forgiven. But let me tell you, when we confess to one another, we take what is true out of the darkness and bring it into the light of another believer and it loses its power over us. Because when sin is kept in the dark, it is powerful. And James is saying, bring that out. If your condition has led to a point where you're sick and maybe you think you're sick because you have sinned, call the elders. They pray over you. If it was regarding sin that led to your sickness, you'll be healed. But you got to humble yourself. And some of you need to pray with other people and those around you. It's far too easy just to try to be self-sufficient. I can get through this. I can get by. I can do all sorts of things. I think it's interesting because either we don't truly believe that sin is that destructive or we don't believe in the power of grace. See, we confess to God and we we either say, well, I don't really need to confess this because sin isn't that destructive, but don't we all know people who've had their life destroyed by their own sin, whether it was their word or their fights or anything on the inside that comes out? 
We all know people who've gone through experiences like that, and yet we think we can manage it. So we either don't believe that it's really that destructive, which I think we, we acknowledge that it is, or we don't believe in the power of grace that God's forgiveness is available for us. And he's caused us to learn to grow in community with other believers. So what? We confess to God that's forgiveness, but we confess to one another so that you may be healed. Maybe some of you are realizing today you might not even confess your sin alone to God that much. And maybe today the whole point of you being here is that you just begin to, God, I am humbling myself to say, it's not that I messed up, it's I sinned. And that sin was so serious that you had to go die for it on the cross. And so God, I receive your forgiveness. Thank you so much. But I got to admit, I got to stop being strong and stiff-necked. I got to admit that, that I have sinned in what I say and what I'm doing. I'm going to confess that to you. And then with some other people that you just have a trusted friend, you say, listen, man, I just find that I have this re re repetition of this one area, confessing, asking God for forgiveness, but I do it again, I'm not healed. To confess it to another brother or sister so that sin loses its power. James sums up his book with this statement. James, after saying all these things, he finally says this in James 5, 19. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Talks about the person who wanders. Sometimes we see people who wander, and I'll be honest with you, there's some of you in this room, you have spent so much energy lecturing Quoting scripture, maybe, reminding people, shaming, using guilt, whatever, trying to get them to come back, and you have not actively prayed for that person to turn away. They're wandering, and you've addressed the wandering, but you have not addressed the God of the universe who makes people come to their senses, repent of their sin, and turn back toward him. And you're leveraging all the power that you have to heal another and it's not working. And James is saying, listen, if someone's wandered away, you be praying for that person. It is our responsibility to help a brother or a sister wander back into the truth. When it uses that phrase, wanders from the truth, this might be a person associated with the church that trusts the world and replaces God as the source of genuine faith. So basically they, they say, God, that's great and all, I believe in you, but my heart trusts my own self-sufficiency and I love the world. So it's a person associated with the church, but not actually a believer. And let me tell you that you might associate with the church. You might say with your mouth, I believe. You might profess a faith, but your judgments are revealing, those things in the heart are revealing that your faith is less than genuine. There may be complete prayerlessness in your life. Your, your tongue may reveal what your heart believes. It's a tattletale, and it tells on your heart. Your fights and quarrels may reveal that this thing on the inside is not actually genuine. You may live as what Craig Rochelle calls a Christian atheist. If somebody says, I believe in God, but I actually just live my life as if God doesn't exist. I don't ever talk to him. I don't ever read his word. I don't ever, I just, I just get through life like I'm helping myself and that's probably helpful to God. 
It's a Christian atheist. And our culture is trying to train the church to live like that. You know what's interesting? People who are lost, they constantly wander. They're just always in wandering. They're looking for spiritual help. They want Jesus. They want to know him so personally. And they're always wandering. And what a beautiful thing when we are the people who walk to them and talk to them and help them come to new life in Christ, that they experience forgiveness of their sin, that they experience healing. What a beautiful thing that is because they're always wandering. But there are also times that someone who professes to believe wanders. And if a brother or sister can come alongside them and love them in a way that helps them make right decisions and turn back toward the Lord, it saves them and covers over a multitude of sins. It saves them from their wandering. The Christian who helps a person embrace genuine faith is like a rescuer from sin's natural destination for the unsaved. Jesus actually spoke more of hell than he did of heaven. Do you find that interesting? Can we help people find truth? Let me ask you a couple of questions, just to not distract people around you, but just on your own life. Is your spiritual life actively changing you right now? Are you growing? Is your inner spiritual life actually changing you and who you are right now? Does the intensity of your faith reveal itself through your internal judgments shifting and changing and then working itself out through your outward actions? Or maybe this study through James has indicated to you, you might have been a part of a church for a long time, associated for a long time. You may have helped found Sun Grove. You may have been there for a long, long time, but maybe this study the last few weeks has revealed to you that what you've professed to be faith may in fact not be authentic faith at all. See, there's problems with acts of faith versus saving faith. First of all, church attendance won't save you. Associating with church, attending a church won't save you. Thank goodness it's not a performance, right? It was Christ on the cross. His sacrifice is what saves. Matthew 7, 22, though, and 23 is one of the most scary passages of Scripture that I think statements of Jesus he ever makes. As a pastor, this one kills me. As a pastor, this is one of the reasons I preach because... I don't ever want any of this to happen to any person who comes to Sun Grove Church or to, who listens online or who is out in our world who is wandering and lost. I don't ever want them to hear this. But it says this, Jesus said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, he says, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This is one of those passages I'm just like, oh, I don't ever want a person to say, God, I was a part of Sun Grove Church. I associated with these things. I helped out with canned food and clothing exchange, and I, I helped the poor, and I did all these things, God, and just almost like you're stacking up evidence. And God to say, listen, it's possible to have outward actions without having internal faith. Now, James has said already, faith without actions is dead. And that works reverse because Paul all the time says that our outward actions are a representation of internal faith. But you and I both know it's possible to do good things out of wrong motive. We can be publicly generous so people think we're generous. 
We can be sacrificial so people think we're sacrificial. That's different than saving faith. I don't ever want a person to stand before God and say, Lord, we did all these things. I was like, I never knew you. You didn't have a relationship with me. Saying a one-time prayer without submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ won't save you. When you and I say yes to Jesus in here, when we accept Christ, when we respond to prayer that today, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you, that's the invitation to a relationship. That's the beginning of relationship. And now it's a surrender that I give me up and I'm surrendering my life to your Lordship, which means the rest of my life I will grow. Jesus said this in Luke 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? What's that? That's the person who professes. I believe, I'm just not going to do it. I believe, I'm just not going to do what you say. That's not authentic faith. And if that's offensive to you, let me tell you something. That statement right there can be very, very offensive. But if that's offensive to you, my hope is that that statement is offensive to you, that I've not been offensive to you, that that statement offends you and makes you say, let me evaluate my life on my spiritual condition to understand, do I believe in Jesus? Because I would much rather for the statement like that to offend you and for you to reflect and turn a repentance to God and go to heaven than to ever stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these great things? I'll say, I never knew you. Authentic faith reveals itself through outward obedience. You see people up here getting baptized. Baptism is a symbol of I've already made a faith decision for Christ, and now I'm in obedience being baptized. People are not saved when they get in the are not saved by being in the baptistry. They have already been saved, and they're making a public demonstration that they're being baptized. But I want to challenge you, some of you in this room, for whatever reason, I don't know all your stories, but for whatever reason, you might be in a position to say, I have actually never been baptized. And I would say the pattern in Scripture is always believe and one of the evidences of be baptized. And if you've had some reservation about that in your heart and you've never been baptized, then you may want to look at your own life and say, if I'm resistant about being so obedient in the first step that God gives me to do, what does that say about my heart condition? Do I, in fact, have authentic faith? Because authentic faith will leak its way out into our actions through obedience. And then being good enough is never good enough when it comes to sin. We need Jesus. You can't perform your way to heaven. His righteousness gets placed on us at the moment of faith, and our sin becomes satisfied by his death on the cross. If we take a moment, I want you to just bow your heads and close your eyes as we drop the shades. We're just going to take a moment to consider your own life, not letting anybody else around you distract you. But just thinking about your own life and the condition of your faith. If today you're realizing, I don't have that ultimate healing. I don't have the assurance that when I die, that I will stand before God and go to heaven. And today you're saying, that's it. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to take charge of my own thoughts and emotions, my soul and my spirit. I'm going to offer myself and surrender to him. If that's you today, then you pray this prayer right where you're seated. Just repeat after me. You just pray it silently right where you're at. Jesus, today I'm saying yes to you. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe that you will give me your righteousness and I can't earn it. 
I believe that you rose from the dead and that you are God. I ask you to come into my heart and make me a new creation. Help me to grow in faith as I follow you. Because today, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. If you just prayed that prayer, would you raise up your hand anywhere around the room? We've got some friends who'd like to give you some information. But if today you just said, today is the day I'm surrendering to Jesus, I'm just going to raise up my hand. Would you just do that? Hold that up. They'll find you. If you hold up long enough, they'll make their way to you. Anywhere around the room. That's awesome. Right over here in the back. Awesome. And they'll just come find you. So don't be surprised when somebody gives you something. Awesome. Anywhere else around the room. If today is the day of salvation for you. That's so good. Jesus, we are so grateful for your death on the cross. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. They've already made a statement of faith. They've already believed. But many are unwilling to humble themselves and and get help. God, we are a stiff-necked, stubborn, self-reliant people. And so, God, I pray that today our decision would be to attend Celebrate Recovery, would be to get in a community group, to risk that, to tell a brother or sister about the sin that has trapped us that we're trying to manage. And that, God, by your wounds, we would be healed. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.